You see, at the time I was misquoted, I never said the Superman exists and he is American. What I said was God exists and he is American. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Bybee. And today we're going to talk about Watchmen the movie here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to the ever-increasing end of everything, or at least the end of this season, which at this point feels about the same. <laughs> but um, it's all led up to now, and so we can I think we can safely say that this is one of the last superhero shows that we're doing for a while. Yeah, and honestly, I'm really glad we're ending on this because, to be honest, uh, Watchmen, the comic, is probably one of the most influential comic books in the 20th century, period. Um, it, as a graphic novel, is one of the few graphic novels to make uh, the Times Best 100 Novels list. Um, it basically created the entire deconstructionalist genre. Um, so it's, it's good that we're ending on this, and it just happens that both uh, uh, the movie, and, well, okay, I'm that. Some of the spinoff material for Watchmen has been not great, but it generally does tend to hit pretty well in terms of, of things that build on the graphic novel. And, you know, it was made by a wizard, so of course it did amazing. Yes, yeah, so we should talk about Alan Moore for a minute here. Are, are, you, are you legally capable of speaking about Alan Moore since you reside oh, let me, sorry, let me, in let me that, that part of the world now? Um, um, I, we should talk about the original author as he prefers to be known in these instances um, uh, the original author who may or may not be a wizard and who most definitely is Alan Moore uh, has distances himself from nearly everything spinning off of Watchmen would you like to know the one tie-in product that Alan Moore actually worked on I'm going to assume it's some line of shoes that was based on um, Dr. Manhattan. No, um, it is, in fact, the DC Heroes Watchmen supplement. Mm. Alan Moore actually wrote that. I know, right? Uh, so that actually has some background material that was, that was absolutely intended for the graphic novel. He just never got around to doing. So it's the only other thing that exists that he has worked on that can remotely be considered canon. So of all things, the DC hero supplement. <laughs> can I tell you that I want to be so famous that I can, can be claim for myself to claim to be a time Lord and can snicker in persnickety enough that people will still come to me and ask me to work on things and give me their money for my IP ideas. That is how famous I want to be. And I yeah, can be well. as, as, obstinate as I want, and they will still come in droves. And it's, oh my God, yeah. I mean, that's a, okay, I should probably start from this point. I'm not a huge fan of Alan Moore. I think he's an asshole. Uh, and, I, and I think that some of his work is overrated. I don't think Watchmen is overrated. Um, uh, but there are certainly people who are really love all of Alan Moore's work, and I have to kind of remind people that like for every Watchmen, there was him writing 
Tarot for a knockoff comic book company because he needed the money. Uh, so um, it, it's not all it's not all great. But one of the advantages of being so persnickety and wanting his name removed from Watchmen stuff is it does allow things like this movie to be able to say things like co-created by Dave Gibbons, who is frankly overshadowed as a collaborator on Watchmen. Dave Gibbons is amazing and deserves all of the attention he, he can get. He's a fantastic artist. And I really feel like a lot of what made Watchmen so special was Dave Gibbons art. Agreed. So, uh, the backstory behind this, I mean, which is weird because, like, again, one of the most famous... You would get no more Alan Moore talk, no more delving into the, the other works that Alan Moore did. Why? Why give that man more attention? I mean, I'm talking about Dave Gibbons. Dave Gibbons some fantastic work over his life. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, I mean, th I think the creation of Watchmen is a little more interesting than Guy Who Believes He's a Snake Wizard. And is in a beef with another Scottish comic book writer. <laughs> so, I, I'm mostly kidding. But the the big thing is, no one, no project is ever just one person. So it is nice to see when other people get recognition for their work because they also bled and sweat for it. Right. Exactly. And uh, uh, I, again, I mean, I really feel like this is a combination of both men doing a, a really good job. And also, frankly, a really bizarre set of circumstances. Uh, the, how Watchmen got created is, much like the material, it's a bit weird. Uh, so, um, at this stage, as I understand, this is 85. Uh, both Moore and Gibbons are getting a little tired of working on superhero comic books. Um. And DC came to them with a proposal. They had just purchased uh, a Charlton, which was another comic book company. They, they bought the, the whole company, including all VIP that comes with it. And wait, wait, isn't that where the legendary Peacemaker comes from? That is, in fact, where characters like Peacemaker and Captain Adam and Blue Beetle and Thunderbolt and The Question and Phantom Lady all come from. Uh, so, um, and even, I believe that's where, uh, Captain Marvel also comes from. Uh, so they had access to this suite of characters. And they said, we want to do a new comic book featuring these characters. And so Alan Moore said, cool, no problem. Turned in the first treatment of Watchmen. And DC's like, yeah, no, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the compromise they came to was that Watchmen could go ahead. Almore had to come with, with analogs for all of his characters. Uh, and then uh, other people were approached about finding ways to bring most of these characters uh, into DC continuity. So it is kind of weird that uh, uh, a lot of these characters at the time were barely well-known. And now we're in a world where uh, Peacemaker has his own show. Uh, Blue Beetle's actually quite a well-respected B-level DC hero at this point, uh, primarily because of uh, him dying and coming back a couple times. But you know, Blue Beetle is, is a fantastic character. Uh, Don't doubt the prominence of the question, either one or two. I'm sorry, what? Don't doubt the, the prominence of the question, either one or two. 
Oh, yeah. Definitely Blue Beetle 2. We're talking about Ted Court. <laughs> oh, no. I'm talking about the question. Oh, uh, yes. But both questions are actually really cool. Um, I I have actually prefer the Montoya question personally, but... <clears throat> Uh, uh, and I'll go, we'll go through all of these characters in our usual comic book breakdown. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's, again, it's a weird moment where a major comic book company purchases another comic book company and says, we want to do a new line featuring them. And the instead of just spiking the pitch, they said, we want to do something else with this. And so Watchmen comes out, and from there, we get... You know, from this is what you get uh, a lot of deconstruction stuff. So like the boys ultimately place the lineage back to Watchmen, but also things like the Vertigo line uh, from DC Comics, um, which means where's where you get Sandman from. A lot of the, the stuff that um, uh, uh, the Doom Patrol did ended up being spun off and definitely gets inspired by this. It, it's really where hard. From. Yeah, it's hard to overstate the impact this 12 issues of comic book had on the industry. It, it, it was a, was a huge shift. And so it kind of leads to the other half of this is that almost immediately it was optioned for films and it went through almost 20 years of production hell because it was believed to be unfilmable and we believe that no one could actually make this into a film. Before you fully get into that, can I tell you one snippet that that I've heard, uh, maybe rumor, but I love it. Sure. Is that originally they sold them that it was a twelve comic book run, but they only had enough material for about six or seven comics, <laughs> and so they went back in, and that's where the pirate piece comes from. No, oh, right. That's amazing. Sorry. Well, then, that, that, that's, that's a good point. Like, um. It does hang together really well as a novel, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons where the, the term graphic novel, DC started pushing that because they really did feel like Watchmen was structured like a novel and should be considered on the same level as, as a novel. Uh, but it was produced in the same environment as all the comics, which is they're doing it month to month. Uh, and while both Gibbons and Moore had a plan, uh, they were kind of also making it up as they went along, but much like a lot of month to month comic books. So the fact that this thing came out of it is is certainly I don't want to take anything away from either Moore or Gibbons, but also just kind of right place, right time, happened to hit a certain moment, a certain zeitgeist. Um, much like a lot of these things, uh, it's just as much, or at least chance as, as as a part of it as well as skill. Let's put it that way. Every single time, like it doesn't matter how incredible or talented you are, if you don't have a bit of luck, that thing will not pop. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So, um, just I wasn't gonna say much more beyond the film, but just it was unfilmable for a long period of time until Zack Snyder came along and said I could do it. Uh, and it was a combination of Zack Snyder being really a huge fan of the material and technology being further along to the get you could do some of the things. Combined with DC really wanting to uh, have another big splash because at this point the Batman franchise is starting to get a little thin. Uh, so again, things fell together to actually make this film in 2009. And just as a point of reference for folks, when we're saying 2009, superhero movies around that point in time, you've had maybe two or three Marvel movies out. You didn't have 
the deluge of Marvel movies, superheroes were not something everyone was a fan of at that point in time. It was sort of the the superhero crest was just really starting to get moving. We were like three, four Marvel movies in. People were starting to get on board with the idea of it. And that's when Watchmen hit. I think, in my own opinion, Watchmen would have been more successful if it had hit about five years later, maybe six. So there would have been time for that superhero love to build up before you start trying to deconstruct something that a lot of people don't really want to have deconstructed yet because they didn't know enough about it. Well, and and this goes into one of my overall comments about the film is another reason why I think it didn't do well is it is a little too faithful to the comic. Um, For for context, uh, we're not doing the ultra super major mega cut of this movie, which has all the pirate stuff in it. Um, Partially because most every stream platform has a theatrical cut and partially because you're missing nothing by the extra material. Uh, Nothing of note is added by the extra material. And Eddie didn't want to hear me do like four sea shanties throughout the course of the show. I have asked you, you land lover. I, I may have already had sea shanty songs pulled up that I was going to randomly sing when you weren't expecting it. Oh, so but, and he's like, episode. no, no pirates. And I was like, all right, motherfucker. Because, because as we all know, I hate fun. <laughs> that um, is definitely the illusion that is sometimes cast on this podcast. <laughs> I'm the person like, no, no, stop having fun, Chris Bybee. We have to do a podcast and talk about important things like the fact that Alan Moore is a snake wizard. Um, <laughs> that uh, it was I mean, groundbreaking that uh, Dr. Manhattan Schlong was flying around in a comic in the 80s. Well, yeah. And, and actually, I hate to say this, but I teach to have comments about Dr. Manhattan's junk when we get to that in the movie. But um uh, oh man, now, now, now Captain America, Captain Manhattan's junk has completely derailed me. Uh, right, no, so what I was saying was... Um, uh, you're you're uh, making these jokes too easy, so I'm not taking them. The, the theatrical cut is what we're sh- shooting for, but even then, um, uh, uh, the pacing is going to be a bit weird if you haven't watched it yet, um, because it's basically Zack Snyder used the comic book as uh, a storyboard for the movie. He basically just said, just shoot shoot the comic is more or less what he said. And so they did, but comic pacing and movie pacing are different. Um, I personally think that the Andrew cut is a better experience because when you get into the director's cut version of it, he is even more faithful to the comic and the pacing issues are even worse as a result. Um, so this is better because there's actually some editing to try to trim and adjust the pacing, but it's still pretty faithful, which means that, it, it, it has random long slogs in the middle of it. Um, also, things just kind of randomly change without context because what you can do in a comic book page and what you could do on the screen are different. And so whenever we talk about adaptation, I actually do like to go back to Watchmen because this is an example of why adaptation is sometimes needed because it doesn't always quite work the way you want it to. I, too, am a fan of Scott Pilgrim and how things would just change throughout the different course of the show without showing you Scott not in a hat one scene suddenly Scott's in a hat in another scene with no transition for it. I am a fan of that. Um, I know that you're saying it is very faithful. It is faithful and yet totally not faithful at the same time from like the level of action and heroism in the movie that is not conveyed through so much of the comic. Well, right. That's what I mean. It it, it is, it is, um, I guess what I'm trying to describe it is, is it is, um, 
uh, it, it looks at the comic and says basically yes, shoot that without thinking through how that should look in a movie medium. Which is what, that's what I mean by faithful in the sense of it's uh, it, it's trying to be too respectful to the property in a lot of ways. Because you're right. Um, uh, this is a extremely well. I mean, it's not an extremely dynamic comic. There's still lots of talking heads, but how they, how Gibbons, and I'm going to put emphasis on Gibbons here, shows people talking in a room. It's exciting and interesting, but it's exciting, and interesting in a different way than you do in visual media. So if you just shoot that, it comes across as dull, um, and that's something that this movie suffers a fair bit from is not doing that. Like the. I don't want to go too much into the actual movie and talk about plot yet, but I will say the intro sequence is actually the most exciting and dynamic part of the film because it's not related to anything in the comic. It's just kind of taking bits and pieces from the comic that didn't fit anywhere else, jamming them together to do kind of a, a time capsule of how we got to now. And because there was no uh, comic book thing to draw from, Zack Snyder was forced to use cinematic language, and it comes across as much more dynamic as a result, even though it's literally slower because it's in slow motion. Uh I, I agree, but I'm not going to talk about that till we go into the movie. Right, right, right. Sorry if I if I got you off track before you really got a chance to break down the characters and everything else. Although, yeah, so let's good. I got to say, Doctor Manhattan better than Captain Adam. Well, let's talk about that actually. So, um, uh, let's talk about the characters, including who they're based off of. Uh, so, start with uh, Ozymandias, uh, who he is the uh, smartest man on the planet, and he has complete physical and mental control for himself. And he is based off of Peter Cannon Thunderbolts. And I don't know who that is either. So I, I had to research who that was. And Peter Cannon Thunderbolt is a character who has control over his mental and physical processes. So he's a generic complex smart guy, basically. You know what? This is one of the few times I will also say I had absolutely no idea who that is. It is yeah. a rare moment that that happens on this podcast. I, I, I was I was shocked too. I was like, maybe Chris will know, but I, I don't know who Peter Cannon Thunderbolt is. Um, amusingly, I do know that Peter Cannon Thunderbolt is not owned by DC anymore for some reason. I don't want to go into because I don't know the answer. I don't want to research it. But apparently, he's owned by somebody else now. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, Night Owl. Um, Nate Owl is a retired superhero. He utilizes owl-themed gadgets, um, and he is heavily based on Ted Cord version of Blue Beetle, but also a strong dose of Batman, let's be honest. Uh, um, but he is gadget-based superhero. Uh, the comedian, um, who is a government-sanctioned quote-unquote hero, um, he uses guns. Uh, he's basically uh, the Punisher with a badge. Uh, and he's based on Peacemaker, who until three years ago, I still had no idea who he was either. But now I have a very strong idea who he is, and I can see <laughs> the connections much more obviously now. Uh, Silk Spectre, the second Silk Spectre, is the one we follow in the film, but we do see both Silk Spectres. Spectre? Spectre? I don't know. Um, uh, but she's physically adept. Uh, she uh, is an ass kicker, um, and she's based on. Uh, primarily off of the Phantom Lady character, but also there's Black Canary, Nightshade. Um, there's a lot of that kind of physically adept woman who uh, is an adventurous archetype in comic books in that time. Uh, there's a Rorschach. Um, he is a detective, um, and his superpower is being an objectivist asshole. Um, and he is based on the, the first question, who is slightly less of an objectivist asshole. Uh, but amusingly, this is 
one point where Alan Moore actually fanboyed out, which I think I, I want to talk about this for a second. <laughs> um, so the question was created by Steve Ditko, who is a, a phenomenal, legendary uh, artist. He worked primarily at Marvel. He's one of the co-creators of Spider-Man, uh, among other characters, uh, also Doctor Strange. And he fell down Ayn Rand's rabbit hole pretty early in his career, became super into oh. objectivism. And well. Alan Moore said, out of all of these characters, I want to respect Steve Ditko's original ideology. And so he made Rorschach super objectivist. Um, and it's funny because for years I thought he's making fun of Steve Ditko. He's got to be because this is like hyper, hyper intense objectivism. But no, Alan Moore genuinely thought he was being a, a faithful representation of objectivist beliefs. So take that for what you will, but I'm going to just put it out there. Not a fan of objectivism. So, And if if anyone has not read Ayn Rand, it is... Uh, Save yourself. Uh, it's, it's so, as a, as a youngster in high school, I myself read Ayn Rand when I was 13. Sure. And even then, I was like, what the fuck is this bullshit? But I digress. There are a lot of people, though, that love Atlas Shrugged. And I think there's actually a, a weird legal thing for people that make a movie of Atlas Shrugged. At no point in time can they cut John Galt's speech down. It has to be that massive, yes. sprawling monstrosity in every single medium it comes up in. Yep. Um, I, I liked objectivism when it was the enemy in um, a couple of video games I played in, but otherwise... Uh, do we want to talk about the the horror that is Bioshock Three? We can we can stop our entire Watchmen podcast. <laughs> talk about that. Are you talking Fucking about Bioshock Infinite? Crap. Yes, thank you. Okay, because I've not played Infinite. I've played one, um, which I loved because one is basically like this is why objectivism is terrible and will ultimately destroy us all. And then two is like, well, let's walk that back a bit. And it's like, why? No, that was great. And then Infinite's like, oh, no, what if everything was like this? <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? Uh well we'll we'll talk about three offline then because anyway. it, it is a mess that they got a bunch of awards for and then in retrospect people went back and looked at it and went oh we didn't know they did that yeah see I I, I had not played Infinite so so I wouldn't be surprised there's stuff because I I watched it and I was like yeah no uh but anyway so throughout all of this you'll notice that nobody actually has superpowers there's only one character in this that actually has superpowers and that's Doctor Manhattan uh who's I would based beg to differ my friend. The I'm comedian sorry, has is also a superpower. That's true. The comedian has superpowers. There is no White way privilege. she can be that big of an asshole. Yes, I was going to go there for a long trip, but if you're going to cut me off, all right, go ahead to your your superpower, neck, dude. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut off your joke, but I mean, it was, it was, the, the 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 Tony Stark trend was certainly kind of clearly ramping up there. Um, but Doctor Manhattan, uh, who. Uh, gained superpowers and the control over all of matter and time and space due to something, something nuclear reactor, something, something watch. Uh, um, and he, like the comedian, is the only sanctioned superhero by the U.S. government. Uh, he is based off of Captain Adam, who I agree with you. Captain Dr. Manhattan is better than Captain Adam, but most of Cap that is because Captain Adam was written terribly in the 80s. Yes. Really, really badly. Um, through most of the Captain Adam writing has not been good. I think in general, is the more I think about it. Uh, well, it's like there's there, there's a whole, well, not a whole category. There's another character like this um, who uh, 
I'm blanking on the name, but uh, uh, was in Valiant for a while and then has a separate kind of thing, but it's something Adam as well. But it's similar kind of I control all of time and space thing. And it's just really hard to write a character like that for a long period of time, unless you go super weird with it, which granted Watchmen does. Uh, Watchmen kind of, Al, this is definitely Alan Moore and, and Dave Gibbons going, okay, this character is nonsense. Let's take it to the logical extreme. And that's really kind of the, 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 the under overall thread through this is if you write Dr. Manhattan in the actual political world that he exists in, this is the outcome. And the outcome is, is not good for anyone. Uh, so he's interesting, is interesting inclusion in this, but also it's an interesting snapshot into what is basically kind of late fifties comic book creation. A lot of these characters are much older characters. Um, and so this is kind of an interesting snapshot of the kind of late golden age, early silver age character design, because most of them were just enhanced humans with, with nothing but the power of ego and guns behind them. So, well, it's because they also transition now in the movie and then the Watchmen didn't go into it, but the first era, age of superheroes is more, more, usually more magical focused. And that's when we sort of transition to more tech focused, mm, true, which is true. why the second Blue Beetle is Ted Cord, who uses technology. And I think the first Blue Beetle actually had a magical scarab that let them do things. Right. No, you're, you're correct. Because then the third Blue Beetle kind of split the difference and had a, a technological scarab that came from an alien planet. So it was, it was a, a good, fair, I think this is probably the best time frame to have set the Watchmen at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that lead, I mean, and it's an interesting uh, point about this is that it is set explicitly in an alternative 1985. And well, let's go into the plot because I uh, talk about the geopolitics of 1985 is interesting, but I just kind of talk about going through the plot a bit. Do you have anything else about the original comic book characters? Or the comic book before we dive into the plot that Moore also wrote Rorschach for people to hate Rorschach and it is disconcerting that so many people became huge Rorschach fans yes thank you I I have always read Rorschach is like no one should want to aspire to do this and also frankly is a bit of a send-up of why Batman is not a great character to idolize mm -hmm. and so people are like going no Rorschach's the hero and I'm like how did you read the same comic <laughs> as me? I mean, I've, I've really long time. Like, I don't feel like you're reading the same comic, but it, it comes down to similar to Judge Dredd. I think is that sometimes British satire of American politics can be so subtle that Americans miss the fact that it's satire. Like mm -hmm. Judge Dredd, for example, has never been presented as a character who's supposed to idolize. At best, he is the character that gets the job done when literally nobody else will do. But that doesn't make him good. That just makes him convenient. And yet so many people are like going, oh no, Judge Dredd, that, 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 that's how America should run this police department. And it's like, that's literally <laughs> the opposite of the intent of the character. <laughs> and if someone wants to go and try to be so mundane as to decide who the hero of the piece is, that would be the Silk Spectre too, is the hero of the whole piece. Or if you want to be generous, you can say Night, Night Owl also. But it is... Over Spectre, say, yeah, yeah, th those two are probably the actual protagonists of this. Um, but even then, like, it's ultimately what a lot of, of Moore and Gibbons are trying to say is that superheroes are not well people, 
You know, it's like if you desire, if you go into this, it, it, it does something to you. And to be this kind of person changes you and shapes you in a certain way. And that's where kind of deconstructionists start, right? It's the, if you look at superhero tropes objectively, the whole narrative starts to break down. And Watchmen was the first, and I still argue one of the best examples of that. It's been really hard to top it. And I and then there are reasons for that. But but certainly one of them is that unlike, let's say, the boys, let's be honest, the boys, for what we liked about it, it was never subtle. <laughs> and this is like, you know, what if objectivism is maybe not the best thing to follow as an ideology? And other people are just missing that point, right? Or like, um, maybe we shouldn't put American foreign policy above literally everything else, you know? <laughs> uh, but anyway, okay. So let's but go into the plot. That, that was it. I wanted my point about Rorschach, but... No, oh, thank you. Because if you didn't bring it up, I was certainly going to. Because Rorschach is... Whew, a whole lot. Anyway. In 1985, a man living in a Manhattan apartment watches news about escalating Cold War tensions and the response from five-term President Richard Nixon when an unseen assailant attacks and hurls him to the street below. Interspersed between the opening credits is a montage that reviews the rise of costume crime fighters from 1939 to 1977, culminating in public backlash and the passage of an anti-vigilante act. Rorschach, a vigilante detective who operates illegally, discovers the dead man was Edward Blake, better known as the comedian. Suspecting that other vigilantes could be attacked, Rorschach warns members of his former team, the Watchmen. Rorschach's former partner, Dan Dryberg, believes that he is paranoid, but relates his, relates his concerns to Adrian Veidt, who, becomes a, who has become a businessman since retiring as a crime fighter. Rorschach later visits Dr. Manhattan. Manhattan is preoccupied with energy research and ignores him. At Blake's funeral, Osterman, Veidt, and Dryberg each recall the comedian's pessimism in his later years about the Watchmen's mission. After the service, a lone mourner pays his respects. Rorschach tracks down and questions the mourner, former supervillain Edgar Jacoby. Jacoby says that Blake has recently broken into his apartment while he was sleeping, tearful, unmasked, and incoherent. Rorschach is astonished, but doubts that Jacoby would tell a lie so bizarre. During a press interview with Dr. Manhattan, an investigative journalist tells him that several people who had been in contact with Manhattan had developed cancer, including his girlfriend. As other reporters rob, mob Manhattan with questions, he snaps and exiles himself to Mars. Alone, Manhattan reflects on his existence and regrets being turned into a weapon. In his absence, the Warsaw Pact countries make aggressive moves, and Nixon prepares for war. Veidt survives an assassination attempt, suggesting that Rorschach's mass killer theory is correct. Dryberg takes on Lori Jupiter slash Silk Spectre II for protection. Rorschach's investigation of the assassin leads him back to Jacoby. While attempting to question him again, Rorschach is framed for Jacoby's murder, arrested and unmasked as a lowborn vagrant. In prison, Rorschach defends his vigilantism to a psychiatrist, saying he cannot ignore evil and the people who cause it. Or, and the people who cause it. Dryberg and Jupiter, growing nostalgic for their current fighting days, put on their costumes and break Rorschach out of prison. And yes, I skipped over the sex scene. Manhattan teleports Jupiter to Mars while Dryberg joins Rorschach's investigation of the Blake murder. Evidence points them to Veidt as the masterminds. They find him in his Antarctic hideout because that's of course the story is where he has just overseen activation of Osterman's energy reactors in New York City and other locations around the planet. On Mars, Jupiter tries to convince Manhattan that humanity is worth saving and succeeds only when he learns that Jupiter is Blake's illegitimate daughter, a fact so unlikely that it restores his respect for life and loses his respect for the writing. 
Veidt admits orchestrating Manhattan's exile, staging the assassination, framing Rorschach, and killing Blake while he was, spy who was spying on his activities. He also executed the final step of his plan, turning the world against Manhattan by rigging his reactors to explode, killing 15 million people. Manhattan returns with Jupiter to a devastated New York, pieces together what happened, and teleports to Veidt's hideout. After a brief struggle, Veidt shows him that the countries of the world have put aside their rivalries to focus on a common enemy. Realizing the logic of Veidt's plan, the Watchmen agree to keep his secrets, with the exception of Rorschach, who Manhattan reluctantly kills to preserve the new global peace. Manhattan departs permanently for another galaxy, while Dreiberg rebukes Veidt's moral sacrifice, and Jupiter finally comes to terms with her parentage. Meanwhile, a New York tabloid editor, disgusted that there is no war to report on, tells a fellow journalist to grab something from a box of crank submissions that includes Rorschach's journal. Scene. Um, what I was kind of talked to a bit before is uh, one of the reasons why I think this was deemed unfilmable is that it is impossible to separate this story from the political environment it was written in, right? This was written during the height of uh, Cold War scare. Um, although, of course, ironically, the Cold War kind of dismantled pretty soon after this was released. Uh, but at this point, there was a genuine fear that missiles could be launched at any moment and destroy all life on the planet. Uh, it is interesting to me that this is smack dab in the middle of Reagan's presidency, and yet Richard Nixon is seen as the horrible president who could possibly cause this to happen, and so he's presented as, as the president in charge of this by violating term limits. When looking back on it, Reagan was very much responsible for a lot of the, the Cold War escalation that happened in the 80s. Well, I don't think if if Reagan was president, they couldn't write that in a comic in the 80s and do this story. There would have been a lot of pushback and potentially gotten them attention they didn't want. Fair. Uh, that might be the reason why. Is that it may have been seen that Reagan, or Nixon was kind of considered to be relatively safe, all things considered. Um, but it is, it is interesting just because Nixon actually worked pretty hard to try to calm Cold War concerns and also, regardless what you think about Nixon, had a reasonably good foreign policy, right? He actually opened roads to China in the way that no other presidents could and whatnot. I'm by no means a Nixon apologist, but he's just kind of an odd choice for this beyond He's a corrupt president, so let's use him. Yeah, because you have the entire Watergate scandal, which automatically gives you juice for your story, and people right. would recognize the name Nixon for that. So it's an right. easy sort of transition. So you're basically skipping over a few steps when you're telling a story, and you already got buy-in. Which is a good point, because we have uh, dinged other deconstructionalist shows before about trying to basically shortcut by a piggybacking off of the Justice League functionally um, and them generally not doing well, I think Watchmen is a lot better job because it's doing the same thing, right? It's taking existing characters and doing analogs for them and putting them into a new circumstance. But I think part of the reason why is that you're right. It's, it's, it, there's a more tactical ch choice of which characters we're going to shortcut with and when we shortcut as opposed to a blanket, you know who the Justice League are, so we don't have to tell you who Superman is or Wonder Woman is or Batman is. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, 
I mean, right away we realize this is definitely a different 1985 than we know. I mean, that, that, that's made extremely clear. Um, we have before the, we get into okay. that proper, because mm-hmm. if you're starting at 85, you're skipping my favorite part of this entire film, which is the opening montage. Um, I was I was actually going to work my way back to that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I, I'm actually going to talk about the fight scene before it, um, which is Exhibit A for why comic book pacing does not work for movies. Uh, because in the original graphic novel, um, this is a fantastic fight. You don't see who the assailant is. You just see what, as far as we can tell, is an old man getting his ass kicked uh, in his apartment before he's thrown out through a window. But it's it's done in a way that you realize there's something unusual about this, this old man and that there's... Uh, uh, a brutality that we are not normally expecting from comic books in 1985. And this movie makes somehow makes this fight dull. It's not a, it, it's, it's cinematically interesting in terms of this cool pans and visual effects, but the actual fight is not interesting because you can't really do an interesting fight without seeing who you're fighting. It, it, it's just, it, the, the visual language doesn't work the same way. I think the for me the biggest issue with the fight is it gives away who the villain of the story is. If I hadn't known already, because mm-hmm. you, I think that you can have a fight without knowing who your primary assailant is. And if anything, they should have had a a stunt double come in to do that piece of the fight. So we can't even be completely sure about like the shape and build of the person. Just mm-hmm. that they're fast and muscular is all we should have really known. And that even I think if I remember right now in the cut, we even get a glimpse of the face of the person that does it, which mm, is horrible, okay. which why do that? Right. Right. It spoils the entire movie just about at that point. And, and I think that that's, that's, that that's really kind of the, the point is that in a comic book, you can be very careful about how you angle the, the each frame each. So that way you, it still looks interesting and, and fluid without actually showing you anything, but you have to connect all those frames in the movie. Which means you're right. It should have been someone, frankly, just some someone putting him in a mask would have solved this problem. Yeah. Um, any, but any relatively smart person would put on a mask, right? If only the smartest person in the world could think to put on a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, I mean, certainly, if you don't know anything about Watchmen and you go to this movie, go, oh, it's a superhero film, and then this happens, it's like, okay, this is not. It's, it's, it's a very strong statement. This is not the superhero film you're expecting. So it still it was also up. a nice touch, even though he's he's a, a buff old man getting beat up in his apartment, how he has like guns at the ready and all these other things to show that he is just not a victim. Right. Yes. Uh, so, yes. And then we get, um, hmm. I think both of our favorite parts. I remember right also, there's a picture of the poster of the first Silk Spectre up on, on the wall, too. Yes, of like uh, hinting at something that's going to come up soon. Yes, we we actually said again during the uh, later scene, but um, yeah, you're right; it's also in there. Uh, so we have the previously mentioned um, title sequence montage where we have a whole bunch of slow motion events that kind of basically walk us through 1939-1977, um, which roughly corresponds to the gold, silver, and bronze age of comics until. 
in this continuity, uh, superheroes and all lumped together into vigilantes uh, are banned. But like the cinematography and the history that it pulls in, spectacular. Loved mm-hmm. it. Like every piece of it. And I wanted to follow the silhouette story because that one looked incredible. Yeah. Coming back from the war, seeing her kiss like another woman and everything else, taking that cinematic pose that is was done. That's an incredibly famous photo that is everywhere mm-hmm. from what, what a soldier did. Like, ah, loved it. And then transitioning to the horrors of a superhero getting their cape caught in a door, getting killed. Ah, oh, like those are just exquisite little touches that should have played throughout the entire movie, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it, 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 it's hard for me to kind of overstate how frustrating that sequence is because it hints to so much more. But I do think it is, to the larger point, a good thing because it does what a lot of these deconstructional takes don't do very well, which is that it hints to a larger superhero universe without having to spill everything out. It says... There's been 40 years of these heroics around, so we're going to reference them, but you don't need to be immersed in them, nor do they always need to be directly analogous to a superhero you know. It recognizes that you know how superhero tropes work. So when you see a guy in a cape with a giant dollar sign on it, okay, I get that that's a guy. Um, money is a superpower, I guess. I mean, thank you for being explicit about it. So, you know, that's better. But- what, what dollar bill? Like, <laughs> ultimate superhero, a dollar bill. Or like, what was the other one? Like Captain something, another. Oh, it it warmed my heart. Yes, because it's exactly the kind of nonsense heroes that came and went in like the forties, right? It, it's it's the, um, you know, I'm the the, the green llama, and it's just like that was a character that really existed, and it's like wow, that's you know, or Plastic Man, who weirdly has since gone on to be a relatively well known character, but pla- originally I'm a guy made of plastic. That, that's my whole gimmick. Would you be surprised to know that I know about the Green Llama and I have a comics uh, collection floating around over there with the Green Llama in it? And wow. Associated with him? Wow. Well done, sir. I'm deeply impressed. Or or the Terror. Oh, yeah. With a big skull and crossbones on his chest. Or Terror Jr., who is like little sidekick to the Terror. <laughs> terror Jr. Oh, God. I love that time frame for heroes, but that is a, a whole different podcast. May, that's going to be a speechless run. Just saying it now. Maybe I don't know when. The terror. But I think we should do that. I've never read the terror comic, so I bet you. I would probably enjoy that. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it, it. Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, they understand comics, and so they're able to. All these things are drawn from, like, uh, uh, either cut bits of the comic or like background elements um so these this is whole cloth but it's still drawn from the source material so i'm still gonna i'm still gonna credit uh 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 and gibbons with this and so they were able to create heroes that you only see visually but you still kind of get a sense of how they fit into things and what they represent because that's what comics do they make visually interesting heroes and that's what's so frustrating on some of these deconstruction takes because they make such boring looking heroes and then go, why aren't people invested in these characters? Like, because that's literally the one thing that superheroes are supposed to be good at is look interesting. <laughs> to, to your larger, to that point and a larger point, I think we've been on the show a couple of times is the way, the reason that deconstruction and poking fun at something works is that you have a, usually a love or deep knowledge of the subject matter before you're trying to invert it and flip it on its head. Right. 
Without that, it falls flat and hollow. And these are people that knew their subject matter. And at one point in time, at least one of them loved it. Yes. And so they were able to convey that even as they were deconstructing it, which is something immensely difficult to do. Right. Um, a positive example of this, although it is much more uh, it's not even parody, it, it, it's, it's just a humorous take on well-loved material that ends up being deconstructionist is Lower Decks by Star Trek, right? Um, because they deeply, deeply know how particularly 90s era Trek worked. And so they could do gags like, and here's the salamander that we don't talk about what Tom Paris turned into. We broke the warp barrier <laughs> and just do that as a running gag. Or like, we're going to have one of the characters be a cat person that was only in the animated series of the original Star Trek. You know, those kinds of deep cuts that people like us would recognize, or like me, I should say, recognize. Um, uh, but uh, to a larger point, even if you're not familiar with it, it still rings true. And I think that that's one of the things that this does really well. And I'll, I'll even credit Snyder with, with capturing a good chunk of that, is that this feels like a lived-in superhero universe in a way that something like The Boys um, or certainly Jupiter's Legacy never quite felt. Hands down agree. Uh, so then we're introduced to Rorschach. Um, and again, I actually skipped over his kind of most iconic speech, uh, partially because it's the obvious choice. Uh, but also because a, a lot of, to your point, a lot of people misunderstand what Rorschach's doing here. It's like people look up and say, save me. I look down and say no. And a lot of people take that as in uh, uh, he recognizes the corruption of society and refuses to participate. And it's like, no, he's just a sociopath. Yep. <laughs> oh, he has down. no empathy for people. And say no. No, it's... Because... Uh, one thing that if you read the comic or watch the film critically, it is, to me, very apparent that Rorschach, from the first moment you see him, cares about Rorschach. He tells you several times, I will not bend, I will not give, because that is not who I am. And I can understand the appeal of going, I, someone who's unwilling to compromise their values, but that's not what Rorschach's doing. Rorschach is, is closer to, of all characters, and I hate to say this, Sherlock Holmes in the sense of he is obsessed with the puzzle. He is obsessed with knowing the answer and will sacrifice everything for that. Everything for that. And it starts at this moment. He's looking down. He's investigating the comedian because he needs to know. Not because he cares about the comedian. He doesn't. He literally doesn't. He says several times he does not care about Blake. He only kind of tells the other members of the Watchmen as a way to flush out who might be really doing it because he thinks one of the Watchmen are doing it. And he says in this iconic speech, if someone actually asked me for help, I would tell them to fuck off. <sighs> because they should uh, do it themselves. Are, are you saying that Holmes is a psychopath? I am saying that Holmes, when written well, avoids these tropes, but when Holmes is written badly, like, say, I don't know, the Sherlock series, then he comes across as, yeah, a bit of a dick. Are you saying that Dr. <laughs> Dr. Sherlock is not well written and executed? I'm saying that if you look at Irene Adler and say, 
what if Irene Adler were actually made dumber, but also kind of a dominatrix? And that's totally true to her character. Then you may have perhaps missed the entire point of the entire canon. <laughs> I like Benedict Cumberbatch, but man, fuck that show. Oh, I think that was the, the biggest laugh I've had in the show. That was, that was brilliant. <laughs> Love it. You, you realize now that we're going to have to do that Sherlock series. So we could break that down and I could get oh, Eddie's sure. full oh, sure. take on every single episode of it. I mean, we, we get into the fact that, that it wears its racist uh, sleeve, uh, heart on its sleeve by episode two. We could talk about that. No problem. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about um, Hounds of the Baskervilles. Um, right. Um, oh, God, that was so bad. Uh, so um, he warns his, he warns Marvel's team, like I said, it's, it's kind of to use them. And we get this arc, and I'm using it very loosely, where we know, we learned at this point in time that he was partners with Night Owl. And Dan, Night at L2. least, Night Owl 2, right, sorry. Night Owl 1 has already retired. Um, and that's, and Night Owl 1 retired, and they wrote a book, and that's another kind of subplot, is that the reason why the vigilantes have been retired is because of this tell-all book called Under the Mask, I believe it's called, from the first Night Owl. Uh, but Dan still has a relationship uh, with the first one because uh, he was his mentor. Before, sorry, just before you get into it, I want to say that your comment about Rorschach and Holmes makes even more sense when you think of it in relationship to his friendship with Dan, who would be his Watson. Sure. Because like Watson had all the medical knowledge and everything else. That was some of the stuff that Holmes needed. And Dan has all sort of the technological knowledge that Rorschach needs. Yeah. and and Holmes. Sorry, Watson in that relationship traditionally is written as kind of the heart of the team, and Dan certainly mm-hmm. is that too. Yeah. Sorry, just to that's fine. Up. No, it's 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 a good analogy, um, and it's certainly never been lost on me. Uh, the the arc is that we it is it is implied that Rorschach cares about Dan. Again, I think if you quickly look at the material, the material tells you that Rorschach does not, and we'll get to that near the end. But uh, at least this stage, there's the idea of maybe we can redeem Rorschach from objectivism, which you know is a laudable goal, but does not happen. Uh, uh, to, to Rorschach, not about his character, but I love the mask that they use in the yes. movie compared to the mask in the comic where it would just be like a static stain. Like the fact how it shapes and moves around, visually engaging and make right. you kind of want to follow Rorschach around because of that, even if not the character. Which, again, I mean, I, I think that's 1,000% what a superhero should be doing. It should want, draw your eye. And it's something that the comics can do well because they just, you know, Dave Gibbons just draw a different image on the mask each time. Um, but the fact is that they found a way to do it on film. That's one of the pieces where technology was able to step up. And it was a good call to keep that because you're right. Otherwise, Horse Track's just a guy in a trench coat, you know, but that mask does make him iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we find out that um, uh, Dan Dryberg is the second, who's also retired after the first. Um, he has a, uh, a chat with his old mentor, um, which brings up kind of one of the actual ongoing tropes of this whole movie, which is that living this life is very lonely. 
And each character is ultimately dealing with that loneliness in a very different way. In this case, uh, the two night owls regularly get together to have drinks and ultimately to, to reminisce because they're the only people they can talk to. Uh, in Dan's case, because no one knows who he is. And in Night Owl 1's case, because no one wants to talk to him because of that book. Uh, and it's so, also very reminiscent of old retired police officers and people in the military. That is the sort of vibe and feel that it has to it. Because mm -hmm. no one can understand some of those lived experiences. Right. Um, but we, uh, when Rorschach confronts uh, Dan... Uh, Dan is very unreceptive to it. Uh, it's clear that they uh, broke off their partnership under acrimonious terms, and uh, Dan points out that Rorschach is paranoid, which I think is another point of why people misunderstand Rorschach to a degree is because the argument is Rorschach's not paranoid, he's correct. What the film tells you is that both can be true, and both are true. He is paranoid. He also happens to be correct. <laughs> um, but uh, they relate their concerns to uh, Adrian Veidt, um, who we find out is a businessman who has successfully merchandised himself. And he is very much in the... Re or, uh, uh, I almost said Reed Richards. Not correct answer. Um, almost in the Tony Stark mold of someone who is a uh, smart man who has turned... Who's, who's become a businessman and used his smarts for business game? Although yes, you were not mistaken with the use of saying Reed Richards. Sorry, what? You're not mis you weren't mistaken with saying Reed Richards because remember Reed Richards did that too. He like franchised out some of the different IPs they had. He very much tried to turn the Fantastic Four into a successful business. Um, I, 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 I correct myself because. While that is true, that. most of the rest of Fantastic Four are the people who kind of encourage that. And Reed's just like, sure, as long as the money comes in, I'm going to go off in my transdimensional lab and think of stuff. Um, whereas Vite has a very clear plan for the world. Do we, uh, we could talk about, well, we could go to like a huge now uh, diatribe about Reed or the variants of Reed, like the maker who has a clear plan for the universe. Oh, Sure. And yeah, I mean, I, I am actually in the middle of reading, rereading the um, John Hickman run of Fantastic Four, where there's literally, like you said, a council of reads and yeah. uh, Reed tries to solve everything and tries to to fix the entire universe. And it's only people like his family going, maybe don't <laughs> <laughs> before he actually stops. Uh, really reinforcing that Stu Storm is the most powerful character in the Marvel Universe. But anyway, um, so so what we're having here is that uh, uh, Rorschach's kind of walking us through the cast of the film, right? Uh, um, he, he talks to uh, Night Owl. He talks to Adrian. Uh, he talks to uh, Dr. Manhattan and also uh, his wife, who is Laurie. Um, so we get both of those at that moment. Uh, and we see that Dr. Manhattan... Uh, how he is handling loneliness is by throwing himself into his work and convincing himself that he is above human concerns. And he is and he isn't. Uh, uh, again, the movie kind of tells us that he is not because of some decisions he makes. But certainly 
uh, he is trying to play the aloof scientist slash god uh, in terms of I'm just going to again solve everything. This, to me, this is more of the Reed Richards and an analog in this dynamic. I can see that. Which um, it is reinforced by the relationship and how distant he is from the relationship, which goes into how Reed is rarely there for Sue. Mm-hmm. Which is where Empress Rex comes into play. <laughs> yes. Empress Rex. Namor, uh, who... Uh, made the entire Fantastic Four film for them when the Fantastic Four went broke because he was still trying to pick up Sue. Yes. And leading to uh, the most unbelievable ending of any Marvel comic where the Fantastic Four film actually made money. (laughs) Uh, At time of casting, Sue Storm has been cast. Uh, Sorry, at time of recording, Sue Storm has been cast. Yes. Although Adam Driver is not going to be rewritten. I'm still waiting for them to realize Cheedy should be Reed Richards I and agree. be done with this nonsense. Just just do it. Just, just make it happen. Um, but anyway, so we go to Blake's funeral. Uh, and again, the Blake's funeral is kind of a reason to do a, a flashback uh, to point out and really reinforce, in case you missed it, Blake's an asshole. He's not a good person. And even at the funeral, the people who are there at the funeral for him are really there for each other. Uh, and no one really says anything good. I mean, uh, uh, Dan tries to say something good because he's a decent person. He's, he tries to say something good, but ultimately none of them like this guy. Mm-hmm. But none of them are going to go so far as to say, I'm, I'm glad he's dead. But there's certainly that vibe in, in the whole <laughs> funeral uh but they point out that uh, uh the comedian uh became more extremist over the time that he was with Watchmen, uh and ultimately became more and more engaged with uh the u.s foreign policy than with the overall Watchmen's mission and became increasingly intolerant of the i'll say the idealism I, don't, I was about to say fake idealism, but I don't know how much of that is true or false. Ultimately, he brushed up against the idealism of the overall team and became increasingly intolerant of it. I want to give Snyder some serious kudos for one thing, though, by mm-hmm. having the team be the Watchmen and not the Crime Busters or whatever it was from yeah. the comic. So that the Watchmen name makes more sense for a larger audience. And plus... Come on, if if you're gonna make, put out a movie in 2000, you're gonna call your, call your team the Crime Busters. That's just not gonna work. I'm sorry. Right. I'm 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 even in your in your column of fans, and that's not gonna work. No, yeah, I agree. Because um, I was about to before I watched this film, I was about to write up a, a, in my head a, a joke about the Magic Become the Watchmen. Then I watched film and say, "Oh right, no, they changed that for the film. I I had forgotten that part." Um, because the whole point of Watchmen was supposed to be a reference to the the phrase "Who watches the Watchmen." And Watchmen is supposed to be a reference to superheroes as a whole, but that's just a little too Alan Moore for a casual audience. Yeah. And really, there's only one Busters out there, and those are Ghostbusters. Done! (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a fair point. Uh, Ghostbusters would have been just... 85, they would have been just kind of hitting as a franchise. Um, 
So uh, the one mourner that seems to be genuinely broken up, we find out, is uh, uh, Edgar Jacoby, uh, who is a former supervillain, um, who is played by Max Hedrum, which is fantastic. Uh, and Rorschach, once again, beats up an old man. That's just kind of... This is an ongoing trend in this movie. Let's beat up on the elderly. <laughs> so sad. Um, but Jacoby points out that uh, Blake had broken into his apartment. And this plays to a trope that it's common now, but I don't know how common it was in 85, of the the only person who understands me is my is my nemesis and therefore the closest thing I have to a friend. That's something we see a lot of these days, but I don't know how frequent that was in 85. I do not remember that at all. Right. Right. Um, But even though this is a, now a well-worn trope, it's still played really well here. I think because um, we see Jacoby as what he is, which is basically he's, just an old man who is trying as an ex an elderly ex-con trying to carve a life out for himself and the person he fears the most is suddenly in his room and is clearly unhinged and the relationship i use that extremely loosely that happens here we get a whole we, we by the dialogue they choose and the way they present jacoby and how Rorschach and Jacoby. Uh, implies a whole comics run of fights that we never see and we don't need to see, right? Like, like Jacoby's on screen for maybe ten minutes between the two scenes he's in. Yeah, that's. But that's I genuinely believe that this guy fought the comedian for decades of comics. See, I do not believe that at all. Hands really? down, okay. I don't believe that. Okay. Because from the comedian that we've been shown here. I would say Jacoby would have fought him at most twice before the comedian shot and killed him. Well, okay. That is fair. Twice. Done. Because he's he's shooting uh, people over in Vietnam who are in a bar. He's shooting, like, just protesters in the street. One of them he shot with a beanbag. But the other ones, I don't think that was a beanbag. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, in my head, I feel like by the time he moves to non-lethal ammunition, Jacoby's probably in jail. And then Jacoby gets out of jail and goes, whoa, no, never mind. That guy's crazy. I'm out. I'm going straight. Um, but you're right. It, it doesn't hold up the scrutiny. Uh, I, I'm talking purely about emotions and vibes yes. <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, how those two actors are on screen together. And again, they're not talking to each other very much. Uh, but the writing and the acting really conveys that there is a very, very weird, complicated relationship happening here. And again, it, it implies an existent mar- superhero universe that we don't see, which so many other properties just failed to nail that. So even as we're going through it, and I know that the only person with real superpowers is going to be Manhattan, it would have been interesting if other characters had had some form of superpowers in the deconstruction breakdown, which I think would have potentially added more impact and power to it because you would have had people with exceptional abilities instead of just... Uh, a go out and kick butt gumption, which would yeah. have been harder for the government to then have outlawed something for people with these natural abilities, which ha- leads into a larger discussion. I see your point. Um, and, and I agree with your overall point. I can see the logic of keeping it to Dr. Manhattan to keep 
that narrative clear mm-hmm. of like if everyone had some kind of superpowers and the threat of superpowers taking over was vague, then I could see the story getting a little money, but it's like, no, it's, it's this guy. We need to keep a lid on this guy. And this guy has not gone rogue and using Dr. Manhattan as the analog for nuclear annihilation to stopping an analog, to pretty quickly stopping an analog. Um, but by centering on a character that we can actually talk to and engage with, I could see why that would make the narrative cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see your point of, adding something to make the threat of why they're being banned a little more, have a little more teeth. Cause right now it's just, okay, it's a bunch of old people in masks. Let's just have them stop doing that. Why is this such a huge threat? Yes. Or why don't you just sanction all of them that you want to go out and beat up people? Right. Or just have the comedian murder them all, which apparently is what you do now. But I, I also understand why it's just Manhattan, how it clean and how it makes it somewhat more engaging from that aspect of it. But I'm thinking about it, having read it multiple times over the course of decades, other mm. pieces that could have been there and why, what I would want to do and play in the universe. I will say though, um, as a good point, um, we've talked before about shows that are about a character who's not present. Um, and the comedian's dead by, you know, page four of the novel and by the you know, first five minutes of the movie. Uh, and yet this movie ultimately is a lot about the comedian. The comedian touches everyone's life in this film. It's not a film about the comedian per se. Uh, the comedian is representative of the, at this point, would have been the coming gritty 90s, you know, dark and edgy superhero tropes. Um, again, Caputo's to Moore Gibbons for kind of anticipating that particular wave. Um, but it is interesting how the characters talk about the comedian and, and it, once again, it builds up this, this life and this interiority that we never see because we never see the comedian alive except for a couple of minutes. Well, it's much like Twin Peaks and Laura Palmer who yes. is touches every single aspect of the show, but is not there. And she dies off very quickly. Like mm-hmm. we see Laura wash up as a corpse. And then we get flashbacks, much how this gives us flashbacks of the comedian's actions and how people have engaged with those actions. Exactly. Everything goes back to Twin Peaks. Everything goes back to Twin Peaks. Good for us to remember to think to do that as totally a connection (laughs) to this and not because we just needed a break. Uh, So now we have the uh, press arms with Dr. Manhattan uh, and random weird thing, but I really loved how completely mid eighties this set looked <laughs> like it really looked like an authentic talk show from the eighties. I was so impressed. I probably shouldn't have been, but it was like so well researched in that front. I was like, yes, this looks exactly like these, these crappy late nights, 2020 style interview shows. I am actually not surprised by that as you're a huge fan of a lot of British television shows. And one of the things that I've noticed as an American is that they are usually spot on for like historical accuracy and settings Mm -hmm. and everything like immaculate. And I love it. And this makes perfect sense. Totally. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, um, we know Rorschach is married, uh, but in the course of this interview, they trot out his former girlfriend and her being there when he got his powers. Uh, 
implies a, a, a cycle of comic book continuity that we don't see, but feels very authentic. It's like, you know, he was dating this girl, something happened, now he's, he's dated another girl, then he then married. Kind of like Peter Parker going through, you know, Gwen Stacy to, um, you know, his new girlfriend and whatnot. The, 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 I sense that there was something that happens in Dr. Manhattan's past that we're not seeing, but it implies a comic book continuity that exists. Are you going to touch on the actual incident itself now or later? Oh, we can talk about it now. Um, the fact that uh, all of these were set up by Vite, uh, uh, um, that Dr. Manhattan doesn't actually give off radiation that gives people cancer. Uh, and I, I was speaking about the transformation. The What transformation? So when he gets caught in the reactor and oh. how he goes back for the watch that is sort of central to Dr. Manhattan. It also plays into like who watches a watchman. His father was a clockmaker and all of this. But to go back and see Billy called up, go, call up, go, ah, mispronounced name again, go into that chamber and the door close and him realize what's going to happen. And his girlfriend at the time runs away. Right. And like that is, I think, an integral scene in of itself to show that she doesn't want to see what happens to him, but he needs her to be there, which is kind of one of the, I think, the first real breaks of a emo human emotional connection, because you're going to die and the person that you love that you think you're going to be with the rest of your life isn't going to be there in your last, mo last moments. Instead, you got your buddy Wally going, oh, I'm sorry, man, that's going <laughs> to suck. So, so no, I think you. that also plays into the larger narrative about what's going to happen later with uh, the Silk Spectre 2 and Manhattan. No, that, that, that's, a, that's a good point. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I forgot about that part. Um, because when she reveals that she has cancer, all of her language is, I did all of this for you, and then you did this to me, which implies a lot of sunk cost fallacy in the relationship, right? It's like, I did this, I didn't get anything out of it, mm -hmm. um, which is not how human relationships work. But also, you're right, it, it tells by implication that since his change, uh, Dr. Manhattan, no one has really been close to Dr. Manhattan. He keeps trying to have human relationships, but they just can't because they just can't relate to him on the same level. Um, so he, again, it, it's, it's the, he's not genuinely above humanity so much as he thinks he is because that's what's comfortable. Absolutely. Um, uh, no, uh, the, the other thing I was going to talk about, which I, I mentioned before, um, is people love to talk about Dr. Manhattan's penis. And it's blue. This, Come on. How many blue penises are there? Smurfs? Who else you got? This is this is the Cree. One of the weird places where I, I get really frustrated by the movie of all things, um, because uh, in the comic, uh, there's no there's no easy way around this. Uh, his penis is pretty small in the comic and it's much bigger <laughs> in the movie. It's gigantic in the movie. Um. But if you can shape, if you can turn your own shape and size, you can do whatever you want. I mean, which is, I think, the logic why the change happened. But also, um, Gibbons has talked about in interviews that the reason choice for that was to very much evoke kind of uh, Raphaelite architect or, um, statues. Um, and so he's meant to be much more of a classical look to him. And so by doing it that way, um, some of it was also kind of a, a very polite kind of fuck you to the comics code at the time in 85. Um, but also it, it's the Dr. Manhattan has no time for your 
penis shaming. It's like I got <laughs> more important things to do. Uh, and so, a whatever. I mean, it's like I, I, I they made a change. On one land, I probably shouldn't care about that much. But B, also, so many people online have been like, how could they show his penis? And I'm like, okay, how many women have had their sexual organs on display in movies for, mm-hmm. for decades? Yeah. And now one blue guy has his penis out, and suddenly you're all pearl-clutching? No, come on. <laughs> if you have transcended time and space, clothing is really the least of your concerns. But I do like that as a transitionary stage also because he starts with clothes and as time mm-hmm. goes on, he wears less and less clothes until there's just blue penis for you. Right, right. And it's another touch that shows the further he gets away from what is cons- humanity considers to be appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's, a again, a visual way of explaining his interior conflict. Dave Gibbons deserves way more respect uh are we just gonna like retitle this episode uh dave gibbons watchman (laughs) dave gibbons watchman yes i mean officially according to the movie he is the co-creator so (laughs) um so manhattan fucks off to mars uh and he reflects on it again there's a, a a very iconic scene where he's sitting on mars and looking at a picture and he has this long kind of speech uh that was the other one that i debated drawing from um, and, and I did just because there's really not a clean snippet you could take out of that speech and give the whole weight of it. it, it it's actually really well written of him kind of thinking about his distance from the world. But even inside that speech, there's a lot of language that if you're carefully reading, he does care, even in the speech where he's talking about how he doesn't care anymore. It's like he's talking about how I don't care about humans while staring at a picture of his girlfriend. You know, <laughs> so it's like the I, one of the things that I think uh, the team did well is present the idea of unreliable narration. There's plenty of times where a character is saying something, but then in the panel they're saying it on something different is happening. Um, and the movie has to use uh, narration. There's just no way around that particular juxtaposition, but we're so trained that narration means you're telling me what's happening on the screen and that's not what's happening here. It's Dr. Manhattan is trying to convince himself that what just happened in the interview is because he's beyond that. But it's like, we saw you scream at people to get the hell away before you fucked off to Mars. You clearly were bothered by this. And well, that's also displayed throughout the course of almost the entire course of the movie where we also have when he's in the lab and Lori's upset, and she's going to go have dinner with Dan, he says, say hi to Dan for me, but he's sad when he says it because he knows what's going to happen with their relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we get to Nixon preparing for war. Uh, and the one thing I really have to say is I'm not a fan of Nixon makeup. A lot of the makeup in the movie could use some work. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be jitterous and not mention that one because uh, Silk Spectre one's makeup is uh, Nixon's yeah. makeup is uh, and he's on screen a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, Even the comedian's dusting of makeup is kind of questionable. Yeah, the, the costumes are pretty good, uh, but the makeup, yeah, it's not been great. And Nixon's the, the hardest one for me. I looked at it, it's like. But you're right. Silk Spectre one also her her age makeup is not good either. It, it looks like 
TV soap opera level. Uh, okay, so um, Vite has uh, <laughs> CEOs over, including Lee Iacocca, which is just the best. Because <laughs> um, he is so the stereotypical CEO of the 80s in a lot of ways. <laughs> and then Lee Iacocca gets murdered. And I, as a Gen Xer, I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, that, that's okay. I'm, I'm cool with that. <laughs> Uh, but we have uh, um, uh, where, where Vite tries to be. Uh, it looks like he survives the assassination attempt. He shows that he is a superior fiscal specimen. Uh, defeats the assassin. Puts his hand over his mouth to try to get him to stop swallowing a poison uh, a poison pill. But he says that he does not manage to prevent that, and the assassin dies. Spoiler for the end of the movie, he actually feeds the assassin the poison pill. It's not only that, the argument, well, I'm going to say argument, the meeting that he's in with those people who are not on his side and how he uses their bodies as shields for his movements and ha- and they're effectively killed by, well, I'm going to say that since we're given that, the assassin he hired. Right. Like, good planning from who the movie is calling the smartest men alive. Yeah, who doesn't and, wear a mask when he kills people? And also, this maskless man. Um, uh, uh, it's one of the things that watching it, once you know the twist, actually adds a layer because in the scene, he's trying to convince them that, hey, you all should be on board. I'm going to buy all your companies out because it's good for the world. And they're obviously reticent because they're capitalists. And then the cessation attempt happens. Key people conveniently die Mm -hmm. and now everyone's on board and the way the scene is run it all feels like a natural outgrowth of each moment but then when you know that the twist and watch it again you can see just how intricately this plans and so you really feel like white is in fact a master manipulator and they keep telling us he's the smartest man alive i want to know if no one else has superpowers how is white the smartest man alive what happened what is the thing well, I mean, so there, there, there's two things. One, technically speaking, Dr. Manhattan should be the smartest man alive. But so Dr. Manhattan's not, not a man. Okay, well, at point B, um, what is the objective metric for intelligence that is not IQ, which is inherently both racist and classist? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so. So the answer, Chris, is marketing. <laughs> Just marketing. <laughs> Vite has trademarked the phrase smartest man alive. And that's what his company owns. And so now they legally have to say the entire speech from Atlas Shrugged every time they see him. No. <laughs> so in short, the greatest villain in the Watchmen is capitalism. Yes. Right. You're not convince me otherwise. <laughs> um, so uh, now that uh, Byte has survived the assassination attempt, uh, all of everybody else in the movie is like, oh, maybe Rorschach is on to something. We need to protect ourselves. So uh, Lori goes to her husband and says, hey, maybe you can help me from getting murdered. And husband goes, yeah, but I got science stuff to do. Well, I mean, I'll certainly have sex with you in a, in a self-threesome, which is deeply weird. Um, but I don't also think they're married. Doing science I don't stuff. think they're married. <laughs> I, I, I don't think they're married. Lori and Dr. Manhattan? I don't think they're he calls, married. He calls him his wife at one point, definitely. 
I don't remember that. They may okay. They may have decided. I don't know if they were legally married or if they have decided they're married. But certainly, Lori refers to him as her as her husband multiple times. Common law. Yes. I mean, then it gets into the whole Doctor Manhattan's not really a person. He's probably a U.S. citizen because of his what he's done. But then, then we get into whole how does law work in in super universes and. So the good runs of She-Hulk, frankly. But <laughs> anyway, right. suffice to say, they're in a, rela- a steady relationship. Just um, bringing up random digressions a little bit there. Sorry, he's, I uh, threw off a little bit. Well, no, but it's like you know, I mean, it, it's again a very well calculated thing because you have a conversation between two characters, and you see both of their character arcs in that conversation. Lori brings up the very natural thing of. You're my husband and the most powerful person in the world. Maybe protect us. And he goes, nah, I have God stuff to do. And so, and then also him basically telling you the twist. I'm going to spoil the comic book you're reading for you. You're going to leave me. <laughs> and both works. The scene really works because... the. the let me finish my first thought here. Um, the scene really works because both characters are showing their conflicts and we're getting engagement from both of them. One character is not there just to bounce a character arc off of. They're both going in separate character arcs and we see them happening. My, my digression that I stopped myself from doing is that I also think that Cap, Dr. Manhattan saying, here's what's going to happen, and then that thing very much happening tells me why spoiler culture is not as bad as some people make it out to be. Because sometimes knowing what's going to happen can enhance your enjoyment of media and not detract from it. And this is an example of that because the movie literally spoils the second act for you. While we're discussing their relationship, I do want to point out that the movie does a better job, I think, of hiding something than what's in the comic. And, Which part? Well, in the comic, we know that uh, Dr. Manhattan leaves his, I think, I want to say she was his wife at the time. For Lori, yes, a sixteen-year-old mm-hmm. to start a relationship with. So you've got like a grown, we'll still say man, and a sixteen-year-old in a solid now relationship. Right, you're right. The movie kind of glosses over that. Yeah, to its credit. So yes, that's a very important point. Um, but the show does not, or the movie does not shy away from the fact that she is clearly young and naive, which is the more relevant part of this. The fact that she's underage is not as important as the fact that she for the was movie. pushed into this by her mother. <laughs> and so she's going to fall for a superhero and then told she shouldn't fall for a superhero because those are the only people she could possibly theoretically date. There's a lot of complicated relationships there, and it's good. But you're right. The movie does a good job of smoothing over that particular bump because Alan Moore is really obsessed with underage women. Uh, okay. So we're back to Jacoby. Um, Rorschach is like all these uh, cancer people came from the same company, which Jacoby uh, got his medication from. So we're gonna go back to him, but he's already dead. Uh, and that is a setup for him being captured by the police because he's being framed for the murder. This is another exhibit B of why Rorschach is not a person you should emulate. Because if he was actually the detective he thinks he is, 
he should have seen that coming a mile away. <laughs> but he didn't because he wanted to go back and beat up on an old man some more because he thought he was lied to. <laughs> and then you get probably one of the big iconic scenes everyone loves is like Rorschach with a lighter and a can of hairspray fighting the police. Right. Which, and this is a place where uh, I'm extremely quibbling. I recognize that this is extremely minor quibbling and very much subject to personal taste. But I feel like that fight comes across as more iconic than it does in the comic because the comic comes across as more desperate, which is the intent, I think. And this is like, look at this cool guy with a candle, hairspray, and a lighter. It's like, no, he's grabbing whatever he has on hand to try to get out. Well, that goes to a larger think, comment made at the start of the show is that the movie as most movies do, that will sort of glorify the action scenes of everything else. Because even in the movie, Night Owl 2 is um, a, a good-looking dude on the whole. Yeah. Dressed, yeah. dressed down a little bit. But in the comic, Night Owl 2 is an over-the-hill schlub of a dude. I was about to use the word schlub, yes. <laughs> who has eyes on Silk Spectre 2, who would probably not go out with that guy. And in the movie, it is no reason why they would not potentially go out at all. No. And no. so even their fight scenes are awesome and dynamic. In the mm -hmm. comic, those fight scenes are not awesome and dynamic. They're sweaty, hot, and desperate, and not in a good way. <laughs> um, so Rorschach's put in jail. Um, he lies to a psychiatrist. Uh, and then proceeds to explain why he does what he does. And this is exhibit C of why Rorschach is not a good person. Because he's lying to a psychiatrist Started start a scene. We know he's lying to the psychiatrist because he's being showed ink blots, of course, ironically, which is you know very much a superhero thing to do. Um, and he see, we see flashes of images he sees, but he's saying something different each time. And then those scenes he's seeing build up to the flashback we see of how he became the way he is. But he says that he can't ignore evil and the people who cause it we were just told two minutes earlier that he's lying to a psychiatrist. Why are we then believing everything he's saying immediately afterwards? <laughs> he's not. He's still lying to a psychiatrist. He's not doing it because he can't ignore evil. He's doing it because he likes to inflict pain, which is what the flashback is showing us is true. Essentially. It's almost like he's Dexter. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. He's a very, very slightly more community-minded Dexter. And that should say everything people need to know right there. Um, uh, so uh, this is also where he's actually in um, prison. One of his old villains uh, comes up and, and mocks him. And again, we get the, uh, uh, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me line. Which we love to quote. I get, I, I, I will say, though, that line is iconic. I don't care the context and the crappy person. It is a great line to use. Sure, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a great, cool line to say. Um, and to Snyder's credit, Rorschach does not look like he is in control when he's saying it, mm -hmm. um, which is good because he does not come across as looking cool. He comes across as looking like, I'm going to murder you with my teeth if I have to. And that's why I think it works so well. Right. Agreed. Um, similarly, when he's doing the um, the digs 
uh, uh, while they're trying to break into his cell. Uh, they very much come across as rote. He's not really invested in the banter. He's just doing it because this is the part where I do the banter, right? Um, if I say this thing, I'll get this reaction out of someone to get them to come in here to me so I can kill them. Um, which the actor does a great job of delivering. I mean, I, I will say, for all the stick we're giving Rorschach, the actor did a good job of playing Rorschach, who's a way more complicated character than most people give him credit for. But I think Snyder and definitely the actor got that there's a complex path for this character and did present the right balance of crazy and cool that this cool as in emotionally low, not cool as in uh, interesting to look at, um, but emotionally cool character. Jackie Hurley did incredible work and he petitioned for that role because they didn't really want him. They wanted someone else. Really? And he fought to get that, that role to play I'm it glad because he, did. he loved the source material. He did a fantastic job. Um, and, and it's it's a, the, the 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 jail. I'm I'm blending scenes a bit here, but I want to kind of talk about the rush at the first, and go back and talk about the jailbreak. Um, uh, but the the jailbreak where he's being cut out of the cell. There's a a, a viciousness and brutality to it because it's the 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 villains breaking in are vicious, and then we see Rorschach's response, and it even in this horrible situation, it still feels disproportionate. It still feels like he didn't need to be quite that vicious. Um, but again, this is the the text telling you Rorschach is not a good person. We 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 are following him, but we are not. We should not be cheering for him. Uh, so anyway, during all of this, um, uh, Dryberg and Jupiter are hooking up. Jupiter wants someone to talk to about this whole situation, um, and, and Dryberg is just lonely. Uh, and so they spend time having dinner. They ultimately uh, hook up. Uh, well, wait. And you, the only reason they can really hook up is because they have to suit back up to go fight crime to give him the vigor he needs to perform in Archie. Right, right, exactly. Uh, uh, the fact is that they try to have sex in their civilian identities and are unable to do so. Um, which... I actually like that scene because, frankly, there's not a lot of realistic sex scenes in the world. <laughs> and like sometimes stuff like that happens. It, it, and, and the first sex scene is just awkward. It, it's not sexy at all. It's just frustrating. And that's it's <laughs> accurate. Um, and then they go out and they save a uh, – go to a house fire um, in Archimedes – um, and they realize that that's what gets them turned on, and so they actually have sex, which says a lot about them as people. Right? It's like this is the only thing that excites them anymore. Which goes back into the initial comments about Moore's idea for what superheroes do and why they do it and what they need to get out of it. Mm -hmm. It's like all oh, they're all wearing skin tight outfits and doing horrible things to get their dragging up, and then this happens. Um, a scene we kind of. Well, actually, no, I'm sorry. The, the, the scene comes up a more in a bit here, but we'll kind of talk about it real quick, is that um, uh, the attempted rape of the first Silk Spectre by the comedian, again, happens right after a mission. Um, 
And so we have the the complex situation of a character we don't like did anything we don't like to a person that we don't are know. ambivalent towards. Um, and then, but for in a very similar circumstance, two consenting adults are in the same situation, right? It's the the consent obviously is a big factor between those two, and, and that should be recognized. It is recognized, but also the core idea of these are people who dress up in colorful costumes and only get aroused by getting out going adventures is still valid in both circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It's complex. Uh, so they decided to break Russia out of prison. Um, and you're right. We have a, a corridor fight scene before the corridor fight scene was actually a thing. Um, but it's like the daredevil people probably watches. Ooh, we could do that. We could do right. that better. But it's both, it's weirdly dissonant, right? Like, um, this has not been a movie about big, massive fight scenes. And now suddenly we have a big, massive fight scene. And it just seems oddly out of place. And also, it's kind of shot a little oddly. Because again, they're trying to be accurate to the comic. It's The whole thing just looks a bit weird. It's not bad. It's just a bit off. The whole thing feels a bit off. Yeah, because I think at the heart of it, this is a mystery movie and it is not a superhero action film. And so to have these constant hits of action is what I think a larger audience wants, that adrenaline rush, but it also sort of offsets the mystery and detective work that's going on. Right. And you're right. Um, You mentioned earlier that um, Dreiberg in the comic does not come off well from this fight. No, <laughs> because he's a middle-aged man who's been out of shape for a few years. So there's a bit of the how are they suddenly right, but whatever. You know, it's like it's it's not it's, it's not the worst crime in the world. I could see, like you said, I could see why some executives like no, we should punch this fight up and blah blah blah. Uh, but it does just feel a bit weird. Uh, so they break Russia out of prison. Um, they approach Doctor Manhattan, who then teleports. Well, for that though, I. They come to break Rorschach out, who's already out because of those criminals that were trying to get at him. And he stops to take long enough to go kill someone before he then suits up to meet right. up with them. To reinforce once again, he is not a good dude. He is not anyone people should idealize. And also, it, it, a good point. I th- thank you for reminding me of that scene because um, it's also a great comedy moment. Um, which a lot of these deconstruction ones sometimes miss. They're so grim. And everyone looks at uh, Watchmen as like, such a grim comic. Like, but it actually has funny moments. Oh, yeah. They're just also darkly funny. <laughs> so like having Silk Spectre and Night Owl wait for what they believe is the Rorschach taking a piss break in the middle of a prison riot <laughs> is actually really funny. And they're just like, oh, my God, eye rolling and staring at the ceiling while he murders some guy in a bathroom. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's funny. And those moments do help to, to shape a, a story like this. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of start clipping ahead because we're getting close to the end. I'm going to run a long time. But um, uh, Jupiter uh, and uh, Manhattan on Mars, again, another long, iconic conversation. Uh, and again, where Manhattan spoils the ending of the conversation. But it's... It's just, it's frankly, it's just a great scene uh, because we kind of know, based on the first conversation, that what Manhattan is saying is true in terms of what's going to happen. So, in terms of fact, Manhattan is correct. 
what Jupiter is trying to say is that she knows what's going on in his in his head and his heart more than he does. And so emotionally, she is correct. And so you have this fantastic conversation where both characters are correct, but both thinks the other is wrong. And so when the factual material comes, it comes while also simultaneously proving that the emotional truth is also revealed. They both win in that conversation. And this is one of those conversations where I think a lot of people, again, misunderstand. It's like, oh, Jupiter, she's, she's so stupid. She, you know, she should have listened to Dr. Manhattan. I hear this criticism. It's like, why? Because she also won that argument. She convinced – the reason why she's crying is because he finally sees what he's done to her. So, yes, he was correct that you're going to cry, but he's wrong about why. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful scene. It's also when we get, she has the realization either – I think in the – in the graphic novel, she comes to it more for herself than just having John's superpower show her in the movie that the comedian is her father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, when she punches his construct, again, that's it's a, a symbolic note that some people seem to miss, is that Manhattan is really good at creating elaborate, intricate things that make sense in his head. But when a human gets involved in his intricate, elaborate constructions, they'll always fall apart because he does not understand humanity. So her being human punches the glass out of frustration and anger and destroys it, destroys this beautiful thing. And it's not because she's destroying beauty. It's because he can't construct with humans in the equation. But to, to go back to my original point, um, I feel like this scene is not Manhattan is actually the humanity. It's that he is convinced himself that he doesn't need them, but he does because his in isolation with no conflict, sure, he can build beautiful things. But the moment he gets a smidge of conflict from another person, he shatters just like this construct. Manhattan needs to be around people. He desperately, even though he doesn't think he does, he absolutely does. And this scene proves that, but it doesn't prove it by telling you that, which is great. And it also goes back to any, anyone, any like thinker, like scientist, creative or anything else who gets so involved in their own process and projects don't really think about other people and how it impacts them or what they need. It mm -hmm. is more the objective of completing and doing this thing that outweighs everything else. It's almost to the point of being, uh, for another Star Trek reference, a Vulcan for you, how yeah. you're thinking through the logical processes and that you removes you from everything. Right. And actually, the Vulcan's a good connection because one of the things that a lot of people misunderstand about Vulcans is that Vulcans, even with it, to be fair, even inside the Star Trek universe, the Vulcans are not emotionless. They actually have all the emotions. And Titans, the logic is needed to cure that back. Hmm? They're even more, they even have higher, stronger emotions. They're just controlled. Right. And I feel like that's what's happening with Manhattan is that he, with the, the added thing of that, he has bought his own bullshit. <laughs> He's like, no, no, I'm above humanity. That's why I don't feel these emotions. He's like, no, you really do. We've seen you with those emotions, but you're trying to convince yourself that that's not true. And Laurie knows that. Laurie knows that he's full of shit. <laughs> but also, again, it shows a complicated human relationship. She just had an affair, but she still loves Dr. Manhattan. She still wants him to do well. 
she wouldn't be on Mars gasping and nearly killing herself if she didn't think that was true. Um, so then they go to uh, secret Antarctic base, which is just fantastic. Of, and, and, the, and again, to Moore and Gibbons' credit, they don't even pretend. It's like, yes, Vite has a secret Antarctic base because that's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> they don't give an explanation. They don't, he, just, he just has it because he's rich and weird. It's like, okay, I buy that. Um, it leads to um, them confronting Vite, Vite basically spilling the beans. And one of the best lines for me Everyone talks about the iconic lines. For me, the iconic line is, why would I tell you all this if you had any way of stopping it? I already did that 30 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Which is something a smart man would do. (laughs) (laughs) Just not wear a mask when he's murdering someone. Although, in the comic, I think it is a lot less action-focused. It's been a while since I've read the comic. Yes. Than what this is. It is more talking and dialogue and engaging in that debate then punch, punch, exposition, punch, punch, exposition, well, punch, punch, also, catch to, bullet. To be blunt, from that line onward, the ending is largely new to the movie, right? Because in the comic, <laughs> Veidt's plan is that he's going to fake an alien invasion. And that will cause humanity to come together. And this is one of those moments where the moment-to-moment issue is like, just what? I mean, I... I have a soft spot for the original ending because it is very golden age. Of course, aliens that come to invade and humanity will bond together. But like that whole nuclear narrative that you've been building for 11 issues, we're just going to ignore that? So in this case, the film is correct, right? The film is like, no, there's a very clear threat of nuclear annihilation. Let's follow that to the end. But in defense of the comic, the comic laid that groundwork by having you know that Vite is good at genetic um, manipulation and building things like sure. that's why he has his super prehistoric cat sidekick right that is in the movie that gets destroyed but it's like why is that there that has no point in the movie i w- the comic, that's fair it does i will also say that um one thing i noticed the second time around is in the original comic um uh the alien is a bioengineered squid um and the program that sets off the nuclear the fake nuclear attack is called squid on a computer screen. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I, I, I recognize the nod out. I appreciate that. There's a, there's a, a bit there, but you're right. By going in one direction, they do make other parts of the movie a bit wobbly. Again, a little too faithful to the adaptation perhaps. Um, but this is to me a stronger ending because it also gives Dr. Manhattan something to do with his own character arc. Because in the comic, he kind of just goes, okay, you've convinced me. And that's pretty much the end of his arc. <laughs> or it convinces him that humanity is worth saving, and he comes back, and that's it. Here we actually have a bit of a payoff for that, um, which is that I kind of uh, like her convincing him, though, yeah, more yeah, so than this being in. Well, I think they're both true, right? Like he does convince her; she does convince him, I should say. Um, and to to me, the ending is him acting on that new realization. Uh, but we do have another wibbly part where. In this movie, he's like, uh, Veidt says that he spent billions of dollars creating a quantum device to limit Manhattan's perceptions of the future, which is a kludge because how did Manhattan not know that his 
vision was limited because he's been predicting the future all goddamn movie. Why does he suddenly go, hey, there's this point where I don't know what's going to happen. You'd think you'd notice there's a point where you don't know what's going to happen. I think he said a couple times there's a, a gray spot or like a cloud over something. It's vague. It's vague, though. But it's more to the point that he may not know what happens right then, but he should have known that Adrian was building it. Right. I can't um, see this. Based on his research. But yeah. I know that you're building a, a device that works on that. So. Right. Um, but again, to the movie's credit, there's a couple of times where Dr. Manning goes on his way to simply say, I'm not omniscient. I know my future and my past. Um, so the parts are all there. It just, it just, it just kind of gets thrown together a bit at the end. Again, the pacing is off at the end before. And this is the place mm -hmm. where the pacing is off in the opposite direction. It's not too slow. It's a little too fast. It's like it kind of just Voight throws out a bunch of stuff near the end here. It's like most of it lands, but a couple of pieces are like, wait, what? What, what are we doing here? Um, again, the Richard Nixon subplot, if you will, kind of ends here. Uh, where it's the we keep seeing scenes of him being tense and like oh, the Russians are going to attack, the Russians are going to attack. Let's we've gone from how are we going to handle this to how do we what is the acceptable balance of loss to well fuck it we're just going to nuclear war and stuff I can do to stop it and then off screen it's like and everyone's friends now you know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> there was no point of 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 taking a couple of minutes to have that guy in that horrible makeup, make a phone, pick up a red phone and call Russia. So at least show us that, that payoff. So again, it's kind of just a weird pacing thing. And for anyone that's watching like the ultimate cut, you would have also had interspersing scenes of a new shop owner and a kid reading the comic. And that's sort of their ongoing thing throughout it where he's trying to, where he's antagonizing the kid. Eventually they become friends and when the bomb explodes, I think that's Manhattan, you get a scene of that shop owner and that kid hugging before they're atomized. Um, which, again, a uh, minor point, but one of the things I like about this comic is um, during all of this, uh, the kid's reading a comic, and we see slices of that comic, and the comic is a pirate adventure, because why would you have a superhero comic in a world where superheroes are outlawed? Right? You, would have, you would have different kind of comic books. A neat little touch. Um, then we get to uh, uh, exhibit D of why Rorschach is an asshole. Um, so Veidt's like, okay, I've won. I did this for the ultimate good. If you tell anybody, this all falls apart. And everyone's like, yep, that's a good idea. And Rorschach goes, nope, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell everybody. Now, I can understand the logic of a good, a bad act with a good outcome does not invalidate the evil of the act, right? I understand that 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 moral logic. Rorschach doesn't quite do that. What he says is, "I, I said I refuse to compromise my ideals," and then stands there and waits and tells Doctor Manhattan to kill him. So he is not acting out of a moral high ground. He's acting because. He is physically incapable of compromise. Like he knows the only way out of this is to be killed. And so he's waiting for it. He doesn't try to escape. He doesn't try to, to, to talk anybody else out of it. He just says, I can't so, do that. Wait for me. Wait for it. I'm, I am in general agreement with you, but I, I don't think it played out quite like that for me because they are A, in Antarctica. B, he's in a trench coat. 
see it's fucking Dr. Manhattan who can teleport anywhere on the planet. So he knows he's going to die. I think it's more of trying to take agency over that death is what it becomes. Mm, okay. All right. I can see that logic. Because um, he sure as fuck ain't going to walk back. And I don't think Dan's going to necessarily give him a trip back unless he's on board. True. Right. Um, well, then uh, uh, I accept that. But then I'll, I'll, I'll walk back slightly and say that um, this is nothing else reinforces that Rorschach is not as smart as he thinks he is. Uh, mm. Because, um, yes, he did send the journal off and he said, this is my last entry. So he knew he was going to go to that to die. Right. He didn't know why he was going to die. So, I mean, he, the reason why he thought he was going to die changed, but he still died, right? So, like, he was incorrect about the, the reason for his death. Um, but certainly, if he was as smart as he thought he was, he could have talked his way out of that situation. But he, he just can't. He, he's, he's, to my larger point, he can't compromise. He, it's not that he won't, it's that he can't. And that's different. And that's where I think Rorschach is an interesting character, but a terrible role model. Mm-hmm. But to, I guess, a, a slight point for that is that we've never seen Rorschach convince anyone of anything throughout the course of the movie. It's as if you had a character sheet, you have persuasion and intimidate. Rorschach has a lot of intimidate and no persuasion. Yes. 100%. That's what he has Dan for, who does right. persuasion. And I want to take a step back for something that we sort of skipped over is the scene between Rorschach and Dan after the prison escape and um, Lori and John are on Mars. Mm-hmm. where Dan finally breaks and tells him that like, dude, you make it impossible for anyone to even try to be your friend. Mm-hmm. And you get like a glimpse, like the smallest glimpse of humanity. It could even be like faked that we've seen from Rorschach this entire time where he begrudgingly apologizes. And that is the closest glimpse of humanity we get from that character for like the entire movie. Right. And to be clear, I mean, I, I, I've been, I, as I said before, I've given Rorschach a lot of stick. In this case, I also want to say that I think Rorschach is a fascinating character. I My stick is all reserved for people who look at Rorschach and go, I want to emulate that guy. Um, but you're right. He is a complicated, interesting character, and that's a really good glimpse of it. Is like, From what we could tell, Dan is the only person Rorschach cares for by himself. Mm-hmm. But even then, after that scene, he knew he was walking into, he never tried to talk Dan out of going to Antarctica. He knew he needed Dan. Ultimately, Rorschach could not compromise, and he needed Dan to do the thing he needed to do. So, whether that was genuine emotion or manipulation to try to get Dan on side is left up to interpretation. I think that's good. I'm even with you, and I'm inclined to believe that that was genuine emotion at that moment. But he had a chance to save Dan, and he did not take it. But it goes back to the exact same thing as a comparison for Manhattan. Manhattan all this time is saying he is not human and it takes a person that has a closer relationship with Manhattan to give him a momentary realization that you are still human and you have emotion Mm -hmm. and Dan and Rorschach have that exact same journey for that brief moment. So I I love that parallel between those two, those four characters actually. Right. Um, and I think that kind of, I don't have much else to say, so I'm not going to go on my, my wrap up, but um, also almost two hours. Um, but uh, that's a good kind of note to end on for me is that one of the reasons why I think Watchmen works better than a lot of the other deconstruction stuff we looked at is that it spends just as much time, if not more time, presenting interesting, compelling characters that have a strong interior complexity than it does making fun of superhero comics. It does both. It does both largely elegantly, frankly. 
Um, it does a really good job of managing both, and it does a lot of good job of contextualizing and characterizing the tropes. It's satirizing by making those characters, caring about those characters while also sending up the tropes it's trying to deconstruct. But at any point in time where there's a conflict between those two, it always seems like characters are given priority. So at the end of this movie, there are characters you love and your characters you hate, but there's no clear villain. And that's the ultimate deconstruction is that there is no supervillain in any of this. And that's the only villain we see on screen is an old man dying of cancer in his bed. I would say I agree with most of that, but Adrian Vaught is still a villain because he killed millions of people. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But he's not a supervillain in the, in the, the tropey way that we're talking about here. And the comedian also is a villain, straight up villain, right? Yeah. But he's not yeah. a villain in the way that the society presents him. So we, we've covered the seminal work. And how do you feel having done all that? Are we done with superheroes at long last? Is there no more superheroes to be had? No more talk of, of masking up and fighting and getting hot and sweaty? Well, there is one spinoff thing I did mention. <laughs> I guess we could read the comic book that Alan Moore wrote, but uh, who's the artist? I mean, that? we could. But that wasn't, that's not a spinoff. That's, that's the source right? I'm talking about. There's one spinoff from the source, not the movie, the source. That's actually worth digging into. And that's the TV show. What? Inconceivable. Yes. I've heard the TV show sucks and that no one likes it. And it's, it's <laughs> poo-poo. I don't know who you're talking to. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, because this is the big – we are we have reached the end. Um, so we're going to invite a friend to, to come on to the to show, talk to us about the TV show. So tell us about our friend, Chris. Um, so we're going to have Errol Celeste come on the show. It's uh, a friend of mine. They've worked on Harlem Unbound, Second Edition. They're a great publisher and just an all-around incredible person. And we're going to cover episodes. Uh, I would say season one, but there's only one season, unfortunately. There should have been yeah, multiple so. seasons. That is a larger debate I'm going to have next next time we get on air. <laughs> but uh, episode six, This Extraordinary Being. Episode seven, An Almost Religious Awe. And episode eight, a god walks into a bar. <laughs> Best pun ever. Uh, Eddie, if people are looking for you online or to buy your sweet, sweet swag, where could they get that? Um, well, uh, aside from trying to find me in London, tracking down Alan Moore and disposing of his snake cult, uh, you could find me online any place where it's Pugsteady. It's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Or if you want to buy any of my... Uh, creator-owned merchandise, you can find that at realmsofpugmire.com. But generally speaking, if you want to chat with me, best place to find me is the Darker Hue Discord. Awesome. Uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Blue Sky. I'm Darker Hue. You can find me on Dice Camp at DHS or Facebook as Darker Hue or in the Discord where I am likely sending out memes about something asinine. If you <laughs> want to buy my stuff, you could go to uh, IPR because I think they're sitting on maybe 100 copies of Haunted West. Oh, snap on it while you can. So with that, we will finally, 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 finally end our exploration of superheroes with Ariel and Watchmen TV series next week. Catch you later. Be seeing you. <laughs>